welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always very happy to have any new listeners. And of course, my regular listeners, very, very grateful for your continued support. Those of you who have uh, reached out, sent emails, told me I'm smart, told me I'm stupid, everything in between, always appreciated. Feel free to do that. Um, And supporting Counterpunch, I really do think is important. Frankly, supporting all uh, alternative media on the left at this point, I think, is really critical. I mean, the the situation in the world, the situation in this country, I think, really calls for the kind of analysis that the left can provide. And uh, that sort of critical perspective, that's what we need. And it requires support. It really does. We don't have, you know, billionaires that are just uh, throwing bags of money with dollar signs at us every day, although that would be wonderful. But that's not the case. So we do depend on you guys. Uh, as far as Counterpunch, please consider getting a subscription to the magazine. We still print on paper, if you can believe it. Ink and paper, it still exists, uh, and we still do it, and it's a great way to support Counterpunch. Of course, you can uh, read all the great content online every single day, and you can make a donation through the PayPal. You can pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office out there in uh, Podunk, California, or wherever they are, and um, you know whatever you can do to support the project is wonderful. Uh, anyway, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to have her on the show. Uh, Liza Featherstone is on the show today. Liza is an author and contributing editor at The Nation. Uh, she writes the advice column there, asking for a friend. She's also a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Uh, you can find her work all over the place. Uh, she's been in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Miss Magazine, many, many other publications as well. Uh, she was just a couple of years ago the editor of a very important book, which is going to be relevant to some of the things we talk about today, False Choices, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton, and she is the author of the brand new book, Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation, which we will be talking about a little bit later today. Uh, That being said, Liza Featherstone, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to have you, and I'm excited to talk about some of your recent work, including this excellent book that we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, but before we do that, you've had a couple of pieces come out just very, very recently since we're recording here on January 18th. Uh, one in particular that I want to begin with entitled uh, R.I.P. Elite White Feminism. This was published in uh, online by Verso, and I think it's really timely. Of course, the headlines recently have been dominated by, you know, at AOC, as she is known now. Yes. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is setting the world afire one tweet at a time. Um, <laughs> she is certainly grabbing headlines, and I think it's a good entry point, Not, of course, not only Ocasio-Cortez, but some of the other uh, recent... Uh, um, uh, crop in the the freshman class in the House of Representatives. You've written a piece, as I just mentioned, talking about some of the significance of this and what it tells us about even very recent political history. So let's just begin there. Tell us a little bit about your piece, uh, R.I.P. Elite White Feminism, why you wrote it, and what the central argument is. Uh, sure. Well, so the the headline is a little bit of a um, it's a little bit cheeky and um, and perhaps a little premature, um, but um, but um, it, um, it but I I titled it that to reference um, a piece I wrote just after the um, very sad 2016 election, which was of course the election of Donald Trump as president. 
Um, and uh, and at that time, I wrote a, a piece also for the Verso blog titled um, Elite White Feminism um, Gave Us Donald Trump, It Needs to Die. <laughs> so this piece um, in being called R.I.P. Elite White Feminism is um, expresses a bit of a hope, um, but also reports a bit of progress um, toward that end. Um, and... Um, and I describe how um, during the um, during the two, throughout the 2016 election, um, Hillary Clinton's progressive feminist defenders um, consistently um, insisted that um, Hillary Clinton could not possibly be other than she was. That it was it would simply be impossible for a woman. To um, a, a, to have achieved um, what she had achieved without being a militaristic, um, um, centrist, um, punitive um, neoliberal uh, neoliberal warmonger, and um, and we consistently heard, yeah, sure, Bernie Sanders can do that; it can be a socialist. He's a white male. And I always thought that that was kind of a silly argument because at that time, Bernie Sanders was the only white male using his white male privilege to be a national, so, a socialist politician at the national level. So it was kind of funny. And the argument was sort of always thin on data points. Um, but it stuck in my mind. Um, and um, and then um, in these midterm elections, seeing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, um, who's um, uh, less famous, but also a democratic socialist um, from Detroit, a Palestinian woman, um, you know, seeing... Um, seeing the um, them um, rise to such um, prominence so quickly, um, you know, with um, with such um, such fearless um, left um, social democratic politics, um, I just thought, wow. I mean, you know, I guess the the charitable way of looking at those arguments from 2016 is that times have really changed very quickly. And and I think that they have. You know, I think that um, it's not that per Hillary's progressive defenders were um, completely wrong um, to say that um, that that you know a, a woman had to um, had to make a, um, a lot of compromises um, at that time. Um, I think they were certainly partly wrong. But I think what's also happened is that um, there is um, um, there is a real grassroots left moment right now. There are a lot of um, women and um, humans in general really willing um, to do the work and really willing to um, and really um, eager to see some um, to see some kind of political alternative um, come into reality. So um, that's what we're seeing right now. And it is a very different um, it is a very different reality than the reality that um, the Hillary Clinton defenders were insisting upon back in 2016. 
Well, I think one of the natural questions that some people want to ask, and I think is certainly relevant and, and, and definitely uh, important, and that is that is is the uh, emergence of women like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and uh, some of these other uh, new representatives in Congress, I mean, is this actually reflective of a fundamental change or is this merely a cosmetic change? I mean, certainly we see some of the things that uh, Ocasio-Cortez has done Done on Twitter and Instagram and so forth, and the the headlines that she's grabbed. But uh, I think some people want to leave it as an open question as to whether or not this really means that we're seeing a groundswell and a fundamental change, or if this is something that is more superficial. Well, look, I mean, she's a she's really good at this. I mean, she's really good at politics. She's really good at celebrity. She's really good at social media. You know, so she is a particular. Um, she, she is, she's a particularly vibrant figure and it's very, um, and in some ways I think that almost makes it easy for people to dismiss, um, the, the moment and say, oh, you know, she's just kind of, um, a celebrity and she's so pretty and she's so charismatic and it's just, it's kind of a flash in the pan, but, you know, look at the, um, the, the, the whole midterm election. This is, um, I think, more women were sworn in than ever before. Um, they are um, much more progressive um, than the usual um, congressional freshman class. They're certainly, you know, many of them are, you know, not socialists, um, but they're, um, but but they're, but they're quite progressive. They're um, um, for the first time, first two um, American Indian women, um, first two. Muslim women. I mean, there's a, like um, some are the first um, black women to have represented their particular um, districts. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of firsts, and they're very, and it's an overall a very um, left leaning group. So, um, so I wouldn't say that even on the electoral level, we could really look um, at this as purely just an an AOC phenomenon, although. She certainly is a super fun phenomenon, and it's very satisfying to see her out there. I also think that um, um, that we really we really can't dismiss that um, that this wouldn't have happened without um, a, a lot of broad grassroots momentum. People are really um, people are really alarmed by um, by Donald Trump and his policies, and are responding not just by joining group liberal groups like Indivisible, um, you know, or you know, or kind of the the generic resistance, uh, you know, which is sort of the Democratic Party, but people are looking for much um, more um, structural. Um, solutions um, to the problems that Donald Trump's presidency seems to um, uh, um, expose. So um, I think that, um, you know, I mean, just like in New York State, I mean, you, you're, you're here in New York. I mean, it was really, um, um, I mean, even in, in these past um, state Senate elections and congressional elections, um, people were much more involved than usual. People were much more informed. A lot of, um, you know, sort of very, a lot of people described 
to me like they're you know your least political friend starts explaining to you um you know what's going on in the state senate and telling you how important it is that you have to vote i mean like like there's something very um we're we're sort of in a, um an an oddly engaged democratic moment and um and that's always um a good moment for the left i think yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, hopefully listeners, just as a note, uh, any interference and feedback we're hearing, we're going to work on that. So don't worry. Don't worry. It's not going to carry on. But um, I want to follow up with that. I want to follow up with that point because I agree with a lot of that. And I think that it's important that we critically analyze this moment rather than just simply being cheerleaders of what we're seeing yeah. every time. And I think yeah. that, uh, it's obviously very satisfying to see Ocasio-Cortez torching uh, white Republican men every single day on Twitter and, and, and you know, really totally. blasting people regularly. It's very satisfying. However, yeah. I think we also need to keep in mind something else that uh, was recently, I think this was on, I don't even remember what channel this was on, but somewhere it was, it was shown that um, right now another aspect of what we've seen in terms of representation of women is this bizarre uh, moment that we have women CEOs at the head of nearly every major weapons company in the yes. United States. Women yep. uh, in, in, in leadership and executive positions at like Raytheon and, and uh, Northrop Grumman and all of these other weapons mm-hmm. manufacturers, military industrial complex, uh, you know, uh, stalwarts. So is this really a moment where we're seeing the death throes of elite white feminism or maybe a better way of saying this is are we seeing sort of an internal battle amongst uh, different differing perspectives on what feminism is supposed to look like? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I said, my headline was a little bit cheeky. Um, I mean, I think we are definitely seeing an internal battle. I mean, and, um, and, and absolutely, that was a really interesting um, development about the, um, the, the, the weapons makers. Um, I keep, um, I keep thinking I want to interview um, Cynthia Enlow about that. You know, she's just, she's someone who's, who's um, been um, um, studying and theorizing for so many years, um, the um, uh, feminist analysis of militarism. And, you know, and I just keep reading these stories and thinking I got to call her. I mean, that's just such a, um, an interesting um, we, we're we're at such we're at such a weird moment where um, where 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 we're we're seeing the um, the the feminization of the military, um, and um, and yeah, I agree. I think that um, I, I think what it is is there's a real there's a real contest going on there. There's um, um, the um, um, the the Hillaryites, the one the one percenter feminists um, um, have certainly. Um, not gone away. Um, they don't want to concede the ground um, to um, the, um, the, 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 the the left feminists like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, or um, um, or any of us. Um, they um, they 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 want to um, they 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 certainly want to claim um, that 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 their feminism is um, is, is is the real feminism. Um, and, um, I think that they're not wrong, but it's just that, you know, it, it is a form of feminism, but it's, um, but it isn't 
a form that has many ideas that are of much use to improving the lot of um, the vast majority of women. Um, and and it isn't it isn't a feminism that has um, um, many um, solutions to the structural problems um, that um, that most women face, um, you know, of, um, um, you know, exploitation at work and at home of, um, you know, of, of disproportionate poverty, um, of, um, of, of racism, of a lack of access to reproductive and all kinds of other health care. I mean, the, um, elite feminism has, um, no solutions to the vast majority of problems that women face or that our society faces. I mean, that, um, that, you know, feminism, um, feminism needs to be engaged in the, the survival, fighting for the survival of the planet. I mean, again, of all, all, all of these problems that, um, bourgeois feminism or just plain bourgeois liberalism, um, has no, um, solutions to. So, yeah, so we can't let them have it. We can't let them have feminism, and we can't let them dominate the political space. Um, full stop. So, um, and and I think that 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 contest that you speak of, I think that's um, you know absolutely the right word and the right concept, and that's why we saw. Um, so you know we're we're certainly going to see those um, that contest play out. Um, in the Democratic primary, but we don't even need to um, look ahead that far or be so electorally centric um, to um, only find it there. We can find that contest um, in the um, the battle this um, this week and in uh, preceding weeks over the women's march. I mean that's um, um, that's that that's certainly um, a fierce contest between um, the um, elite elite liberal feminism versus um, the the feminism of the left. And that's exactly that's exactly where I wanted to go next because you had another piece that that just came out. Uh, this one uh, came out in Jacobin entitled "Why They Hate the Women's March," and we'll talk a little bit about who they. Is yeah. there in a second, yeah. but um, I think that just for the uninitiated, for those who don't uh, live in the uh, you know endless uh, the endless gutter of Twitter and stuff like I do, and like many others do, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, for those people who maybe not uh, totally up to speed on what's going on in terms of the internal strife around the Women's March, uh, tell us a little bit about your piece in Jacobin and uh, a little background on what's happening this weekend. Well, we're saying this weekend, but by the time you guys are listening, this will have already happened. But uh, what's going on in terms of this internal struggle and how does the, the let's call it, uh, uh, you know, conflict over Women's March TM, trademark, Women's March. How does that reflect this internal struggle within feminism that we're discussing? Sure. So um, the the Women's March um, is, first of all, it's important to understand that it's a really, um, it's, it, it's a really big signifier. So, um, so right after um, Donald Trump's inauguration, um, just a couple women, four women, um, single, you know, just by themselves, 
organized um, this enormous march in Washington, D.C. and in New York City and all over the country um, of women um, protesting, you know, the fact that Donald Trump was president, you know, the fact that this um, conservative um, and, um, you know, and quite sexist um, president um, who um, some people felt had it all but admitted to sexual assault um, um, publicly, um, you know, just like this really, this really vile misogynist character, um, and, you know, that, uh, and it was a real um, point of unity for, for women. Um, and um, so the 2017 Women's, women's March was um, organized with, um, you know, just, um, you know, not, not very many women on a very, on, uh, 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 by not very many women on, a, on very short notice. Now, um, that march was criticized for being um, very white, for um, refl- having a very, um, you know, kind of um, kind of a simple message for the the idea of women's unity being kind of um, naive. What after all do all women have in common, given um, immense class divides and race divides and other kinds of divisions in our society? Um, so there was a lot of critical, you know, people showed up in very large numbers, but there was a lot of critical commentary um, on on what that meant. You know, wh- by showing up to the Women's March, were people implying um, that everything would be great if Hillary Clinton won? Because certainly a lot of um, women, w- women of the left um, didn't feel that it would have been. Um, and, um, and so, you know, so there was quite a, there was a lot of um, discomfort and dissent with the Women's March, though people um, certainly did participate in it. And a lot of radical um, actions came out of it. Um, like there was, um, it gave much more momentum than usual to the international women's strike that year, for instance, um, which, um, which, which was, um, um, which was quite, um, quite widespread and, um, also sparked, um, a lot of, um, women's labor activism, sparked and invigorated a lot of women's labor activism in really interesting ways. Um, so, so it was an it was so but there was there was clearly a lot more to be done with that idea of the women's march since then the women's march has been um very contested different organizers and groups have taken it on um this year um the um the steering committee um and organizers um ha- that have um that, that have taken it on are um, um, far more diverse. Um, it's um, the um, great majority of the 32-person steering committee um, are women of color. Um, they are um, they are people who have been um, very engaged, um, not only in fighting for gender justice uh, all their lives, but also um, very involved in racial and economic justice, and in some cases, um, anti-war, anti-imperialist um, struggles as well. It is a very 
it's a very activist and very left-wing group um, um, compared um, to compared to previous um, women's marches, um, um, and very diverse, like very culturally, racially, um, religiously diverse, um, and so. I mean, anybody who's ever, you know, been around activists or been an activist knows that, you know, when you have a a very, um, when you, when you, when organizing is real, you're working with people who are different from you. And when you're working with people who are different from you, there are going to be conflicts. So... Um, conflicts arose um, in the group, um, as I understand, um, around um, um, some of some members of the group's affiliations um, or, um, with um, uh, Louis Farrakhan, who um, I'm sure most of your know, listeners know who he is. We haven't heard that much about him in recent years, um, but he's a black nationalist. Um, super conservative um, and um, patriarchal, and also, and this is the um, what the um, complaints have focused on, um, very anti-Semitic um, figure. Um, so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of tension around that. There was tension in general, um, reportedly tension in general about um, the place of Jewish women in the organization, um, how Jewish women felt that they were, some Jewish women felt they were treated. Um, And um, so there was a lot of conflict around that. Now, this happens in activist organizations all the time, that there is conflict around, like there, there will be systemic racism in an organization. People of color will feel that the white people are being racist. There will be a lot of conflict. People will have to work on it, try to resolve it. Women will feel that the men are, like, are, are being sexist. Um, sometimes there will be like, you know, problems of harassment or assault in activist organizations. Like there's like all kinds of stuff. Usually these are sort of are extremely significant and very painful conflicts that take a while to work out. But very rarely do they become um, international news stories this one became an international news story. It was um, it was reported on in um, ridiculous, in my opinion, detail in um, Tablet, which is um, a website um, that is um, um, funded um, by um, uh, very right wing, um, very uh, a number of very right wing sources with um, close ties um, to the right-wing Israeli government. Um, and um, and it, it became um, a huge story. The New York Times did numerous um, um, stories um, on, on this um, kerfuffle around um, anti-Semitism among the, again, a very small organization of the Women's March. Um, and... Um, you know, it was sort of um, it, it 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 was it was sort of it was sort of strange, but it was like a 
it was it was a uh, um, c- kind of a um, what it what what it, what is that when 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 all the all the traffic slows because you can't um, it, people can't look away from the accident at the side of the road. Um, yes, there was kind of like a political rubbernecking, like like there was just so much attention on this, and and people couldn't really look away. Um, but what what I, what I think um, is really about is that you know even though it's more sensational to pay attention to things when they're framed as anti-Semitism or sexism or racism, and all of those things do happen in many, many activist groups. Um, and, and, and it gets more attention to talk about conflicts that way. But, um, but you know, I, I think that when we look at what media sources were being so obsessed with this and, um, and, and what... Um, political players are really piling onto it and really vilifying the, um, the women's march. It's pretty clear that um, um, that this has become such a big story because the um, um, the media and political class and um, and the one percenters in general um, do not like this women's march. Um, they don't like. Um, that it has such a left-wing leadership, um, that it has such a people of color leadership. Um, and the uh, Women's March um, unveiled its agenda today, and um, it's a very left-wing agenda. They have um, Medicare for All at the forefront, which I know to some of your like our left-wing listeners doesn't sound that radical. Like, yeah, sure, Medicare for All, like most civilized countries have something like that. We don't have that in the United States, and um, most that is very unusual for a feminist organization to um, center something that is so um, that is is such a broad materialist um, goal that is also so at odds with um, the way that the United States um, has um, organized its economy and organized its its relationship to government. Um, so, um, so they center Medicare for all, they did a lobby day today on Medicare for all, um, timed to be the day before the women's March, um, thousands of women are lobbying their representatives beyond that though, the women's agenda was full of very specific, um, policy prescriptions, um, to, um, make life better for, such a broad range of women, I mean, considered disability and um, trans people, um, um, American Indians, immigrants. And it wasn't just like the usual left laundry list. It's like, oh, yeah, you have to mention everybody because people will be mad otherwise. It was like, it was like there were very specific policies discussed for um, actually how to create a, um, a society that was um, that ad- addressed specific women's um, problems and w- um, and was um, and would make a society that was more specifically inclusive of these groups. Um, it yeah, it I also 
I, yeah, yeah, sorry, go I ahead. just wanted to I just wanted to interject. I think that one of the issues too is that uh, unlike say you know your 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 typical liberal oriented uh, you know mainstream kind of march, which as you described sort of has this checklist that has to be addressed uh in this case it seems that uh that the issues themselves are front and center because the organizers themselves come from the grassroots that these are people who are actual activists rather than you know say you know these kind of uh you know latte kind of activists who just kind of swoop in for this event and then go off and do their little ngo thing so there is that distinct difference and i think the other the other aspect of this too is that it has very very clear and obvious ties to uh, not only uh, progressive politics, but to an anti-corporate, anti-imperialist uh, mindset. I mean, you have yes. in the platform things like opposition to the uh, ongoing genocide in Yemen. Uh, yeah. I think there's also, although it might be controversial, so I, I guess for some silly reason, uh, controversial things like, um, you know, Palestinian solidarity and questions yes. about boycotting Israel and a lot of other uh, very hot issues. Issues that have very real ramifications for the types of people who fund Tablet Magazine and other exactly. such uh, publications. So what they're really, what they really seem to be concerned with, is not so much the march itself, but what this could actually lead to. That this could lead to a, let's call it a mainstreaming of these more radical, uh, not only talking points and ideas, but radical organizing uh, polls. Exactly, exactly. This is very threatening because um, this, this is very threatening because it's um, it's you know the the elites are perfectly happy to let you have a protest, you know, let you have a march or a rally or whatever. but um, but but first of all, the women's march um, became this really important and big, signifier so they don't want um the the, they don't want these leftists who are um, anti-imperialist and focused on economic justice and redistribution to have that it's too it it has become too culturally important but much broadly more broadly exactly what you're saying um they're um um they, they they can see um that um that for these people the women's march is just one part of um, a broad um, movement of people coming together um, to work on these incredibly important things that really threaten the um, interests of the kinds of people who fund um, tablet magazine. They, and they fund they they offend their politics. Uh, it offends their politics and it offends their material interests. Um, and um, you know um, the, um, the I mean it is a the I th- I thought I thought the anti-war anti-imperialist um, parts of the agenda were um, were an incredibly big deal. It is you never see that from mainstream U.S. feminist organizations, even though um, feminists of the left and um, you know and you know just. Um, women activists in general, I mean, have been um, making these connections between patriarchy and war um, for the longest time. It's not a it, it's it's not a new idea that um, um, that um, a, that an anti-war, anti-imperialist politics um, should be part of a feminist agenda. 
but it's been very it's been very resisted in the uh, in the United States because um, elite feminism is very um, bound up with um, um, with with a status quo with a capitalist system that depends um, on um, on an incredibly um, oppressive relationship between the U.S. and other countries. So, yeah, it's um, if it, it's all of all of these aspects of the women's agenda. Um, were a big deal, but much more importantly, they can see that it is that, that it's it's part um, that it, it's it's part of a left movement, and that it's it's part of a um, a, um, a multiracial, um, broad-based um, left movement that is becoming more mainstream. And I think that's like what's really um, important is that um, you know. The ruling class is perfectly happy for you to have your little sect, your little left-wing sect, but they get really nervous when you start having some access to the mainstream. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, is a part is is a mainstream figure now. People are really paying attention to her. People are really seeing her. The Women's March is a really mainstream signifier. Bernie Sanders at some level has become kind of a mainstream signifier. You know, I mean, you know, so, so these things are, you know, to, um, to a lot of our comrades on the left, um, you know, all of these things seem rather square and, you know, not that radical, but they actually, um, part of what's radical about them is that they're dominating the mainstream conversation with left-wing ideas. I, I think it's also important that we mention, uh, look, uh, we have to be honest in this analysis that there is a very discernible connection between the organizers, or at least some of the organizers of the Women's March and the Bernie Sanders camp, the Bernie Sanders oh, yeah. campaign. Uh, For sure. Some, some of the uh, primary movers and shakers within the steering committee are veterans of Bernie's 2016 campaign. Absolutely. They're obviously going to be major figures in Bernie 2020, which is all but an inevitability, I think, at this point. And um, so there is obviously this other question as to whether or not this Women's March is in some sense almost a launching pad for the Bernie Sanders movement. Yeah, I mean uh, that's that's right. I mean, I, I would say I would put it a little differently. I would say I, I would interpret it a little bit differently. I, you're absolutely right. Um, Nina Turner, Winnie Wong, um, um, like a number of other women on the steering committee are are de are deeply embedded in um, in Bernie world and are certainly going to be part of the Bernie Sanders 2020. Um, and, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to I just want to add, I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to add, it's not just the individuals we're talking about. It is some of these primary issues that have been put into that agenda, right? Yes. The, Bernie, yes. Bernie hung his hat on the Yemen resolution. Absolutely. Bernie's hung his hat on Medicare for all. These are some yes. of the signature issues for Bernie Sanders. So it's obviously no coincidence that they make it into the agenda. And I'm not obviously not saying that's a bad thing, but I do think we should be somewhat uh, honest about the second, third, and fourth sort of dimensions of the political context here. Oh, absolutely. And um, I was told Bernie Sanders is super into this agenda. I mean, you know, he like there's and there's no there's no no denying that. Um, I, I would I, I would say, though, um, I think um, 
Um, I, I, I think that's true. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I, I think, I, I think politically what's happening is we are in a moment with a lot of left momentum, a lot of clear materialist and, um, you know, I know we get sick of hearing this word, but intersectional thinking, um, about coalition building and about, um, and about issues, um, but but clearly a clear materialist um, and uh, you know and and I think um, and and I think in both of those uh, for, you know for that movement the the women's march is one vehicle Bernie twenty twenty is another there and there um, there are vehicles that are very connected there are biographical connections <laughs> there are connections between the people um you know it, it can it can certainly um i think that the women's agenda um you're right having such um being being so tied to bernie and um and and having such similar um, issues to bernie can only help him um, and vice versa. Um, but I also think um, that in some sense, um, they're both just vehicles um, for, um, for, for, for what, what, what is kind of a, a broad movement. Oh, I totally agree. And just to, just to be clear, I was not suggesting that it, it was a negative. I, you know, I was not suggesting that it was a no, negative. I- no, I appreciate that you brought that out, though, because I do think that um, I, 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 you, you are, you are absolutely right that um, that there is um, there, there, are, there are very, uh, there, there are very clear connections between um, the Bernie, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders people, um, and the Women's March. Um, um, but, uh, but I, I, but I also, yeah, I, I, I do think. Um, the the a, a movement looks for good vehicles. No, no doubt. And uh, just to be clear, it's I think it's 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 the connections in terms of the issues. But I also I have to admit I think that there is, and I'm I don't mean to sound uh, conspiratorial in a sense, but I do think that there's something to be said for the way in which uh, certain elements of the ruling class attempted to undermine Bernie in 2016 and and uh, sling mud at Bernie and the Bernie movement and the Bernie bros and all this other stuff. And it does have an eerie similarity to some of the kinds of tactics you're seeing to undermine the Women's March and to try to Absolutely. Uh, sort of marginalize it and, and make it into essentially kind of this sort of kooky radical thing that is not really representative of blah 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 blah. I mean, we all get exactly, and, exactly. And so, you know, the, the the tactics I think are similar, and you see this stuff coming out in the mainstream press literally every single day. Bernie needs to sit out twenty twenty. Bernie shouldn't get involved. Bernie's too old. Bernie can't do this. Bernie can't do that. And it does obviously seem to, uh, at least to me, that they see the women's march as a reflection of Bernie twenty twenty, and they see both of them as a threat. Absolutely. And you're and you're quite right that um, the same kinds of things are being weaponized um, against Bernie 2016, against the Women's March and already against Bernie 2020 before he's even announced. Um, I, I mean, I, I keep thinking if um, if if Bernie were not who he was, who he is, like if he were not um, an old man with family members who died in the Holocaust, I'm sure they'd be trying to make him into a black national. 
almost anti-Semite as well. I mean, you know, he's just like, um, he, I mean, they're, they're going to throw everything that they have um, at him um, just as they um, have, um, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, there's always things to exploit. There are, were problems in Bernie's organization. There were problems in the Women's March organization. Organizations always have problems. Um, but, um, the, um, um, but, the, but the particular, the, the, the Democratic um, centrist establishment um, has really um, figured out um, that they can weaponize these kinds of um, the, the, these kinds of issues, these these kinds of tensions around um, bigotry um, and um, and prejudice and um, and really um, um, and and they can really use them. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing this um, now with the um, stories about sexism and sexual harassment in um, in in Bernie's. T- 2016 campaign, which interestingly enough are coming out now, like, um, like, you know, all these years later. Um, and I mean, you know, it's just, um, it, it's, it is interesting how, um, 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 how, what a playbook it seems to be. Indeed. All right. We're, we're, we're overdue for the break, but, um, gosh, I got to ask one more question. It's a sort of a broad one and maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to. So, oh, please do. Uh, it sounds, it sounds interesting. No, no, no. It's sort of, it, it's, it's related. And that is that we're talking about this sort of divide among, uh, I guess you could say the feminist camp and maybe it's an ideological one, a political one, uh, an economic and a class one perhaps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that that is almost the, uh, the eternal struggle within the feminist movement, isn't it? I mean, from the very (laughs) earliest days of feminism and first wave feminism, you have different kinds of feminism. You have a feminism rooted in acceptance and entrance into uh, mainstream society as, you know, perhaps I think best illustrated by like the suffragette movement versus the kind of liberation oriented women's, uh, you know, feminism that would have associated with the communist movement of that time period and the socialists Mm -hmm. and and, and so forth. And it seems that what we're seeing in, in, in one sense is maybe a 21st century variant of an age-old civil war within the feminist camp. I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think, um, I think yes, yeah, certainly, um, certainly at the beginning of last century, you had those kinds of divides. I think um, second wave feminism had some, some different kinds of divides going on. There certainly were, um, there certainly were these kinds of um, um issues of is feminism part of the class struggle or no um but there were also a lot of other issues like um like um you know of um inclusivity of uh, inclusivity of lesbians or um or you know uh, racism you know racism against uh, women of color and um and there was a lot of um I think in the in the second wave and in the 1980s, there was um, some of the primary um, tensions within the feminist movement had to do with um, how do um, how do we talk about differences among women, um, and um, and I would say now the primary divides within the feminist movement um, really um, it is really a political divide between. 
um, left and center. It really is a, a divide between are are your um, are your politics materialist? Are your politics um, anti-imperialist, or, um, or do you basically support support the status quo, but just with more equality for women within that? Um, but um, those earlier debates around um, how we handle difference um, haven't gone away and are very easily um, weaponized in what I think is actually this even bigger ideological battle. I, I definitely agree. All right, let's take a break. Uh, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the new book uh, that, you, that you've that you had released here quite recently, and uh, I think it kind of ties into some of these other ideas that we've been talking about, and uh, hey, we'll see if we can uh, work on some of the audio as well. So stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll be back with Liza Featherstone. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Here on Counterpunch Radio, uh, Liza Featherstone again. The book you gotta you gotta pick up a copy. Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation, and that's where I want to pick up our conversation here in the second half of the program. Um, I think this book is, in many ways, pretty timely because it it, it talks a lot about some of the I don't want to say just the motivations behind, but I, let some of the some of the discourse and some of the uh, ideological, um, let's say, uh, landmarks that we need to understand what's what's happening in our cultural landscape. And you start by talking about some of the history of focus groups and where they come from and, and, and why they were first utilized. And before we can get into any of the specifics, just tell us a little bit about the book in general. I mean, the thesis and what drove you to write it and why now? Why you thought that this was such a timely subject to explore in 2018, 2019? 
Um, well, I should first uh, give a disclaimer, which is I started writing the book quite a while ago. Um, and so um, I, uh, like most people who write books, it, it was de I definitely um, did not have a sense of its particular timeliness in 2018, 2019, because um, I didn't know it was going to take me so long <laughs> to write it. Um, but um, um, but I, I do... Um, I. I became I became interested in focus groups. Um, I, um, um, I I guess I guess what happened was um, I was talking with um, a uh, with my friend and also editor and publisher um, Colin Robinson um, and um, uh, uh, about you know what um, what 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 book we might want to do together next or what I would like to work on and um and we um we actually conceived a, a completely different project back at that time that this was way way back this was in um um this was at the beginning of the um um 2008 um financial crisis and um we um i had been writing some about um public opinion around the bailout the bailout of the financial industry um and uh, the the public opinion around that was very conflicted very confusing and um um and um and you know, we, and we thought, you know, well, this is interesting. You know, we, um, it's interesting that Obama has been elected. It's interesting that people seem, um, so conflicted about, um, whether to, um, bail out the banks or not. Um, and, um, and it, it seems like, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, we're both, we're both like far leftists. So we were pretty skeptical about Obama, but we thought, what is it? it, it does it say something interesting about where we are? are as a society right now that somebody, someone a bit more liberal has been elected um, president and um, are, you know, are, are Americans, uh, what kind of confused and ambivalent relationship are Americans having to government right now? Um, and, um, and so, so we thought uh, we, th we thought that was interesting. And like most people who are kind of out of touch with their fellow humans, like most you know cultural elites, um, we I mean not we're not part of the financial elite, but I guess we are kind of part of the cultural elite. Um, we uh, we thought oh we should conduct some focus groups, and um, and and so so we sort of looked into how we would do that. And I did some research, and I, I interview, I interviewed some people that I knew who worked in market research, um, and um, and we and started to learn a bit more about about the industry, and I and I went back to Colin. I said, Colin, focus groups are really strange. And they have really, uh, they're they're a very strange ritual that has um, basically determined um, so much of our politics and so much of um, the, our the the products we use and um, the things that we talk about and um, and uh, you know the um, political messages we hear every day. And Colin said, 
well, I think that's your book. Um, so that's uh, um, as as haphazard as it sounds. Um, that's actually um, um, that that's actually how I ended up embarking um, on this project because I realized I realized he was right that um, that that the the focus group was something that um, really hadn't um, hadn't gotten um, very much um, critical attention um, or appreciation. Um, for um, uh, considering um, the importance um, that it has had. And I ended up, um, I didn't know where I was going to end up um, um, in this um, in this project, but um, but I, I end up um, really arguing in the book that the focus group has just has been just one part of a broader process that I call the culture of consultation. Um, that is, where um, um, where we we've come to um, over the course of the last century um, and continuing now, um, we um, we have come to make um, kind of a fetish of giving our opinion, of giving voice, of being heard, um, and um, and that um, that elites have really nourished and solicited, um, um, really nourished that desire and really solicited our opinions and really created um, many vehicles for it, vehicles like the focus group. Um, and, um, and that um, in, in many ways that, um, um, that has come to um, replace um, a, 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 dry, a desire or drive um, to hold political power that um, we we hold forth instead of um, tr instead of um, struggling to gain power um, we have um, we, we, we have um, influence or we have we, we, we have we give voice instead of um, instead of actually um, um, shaping the course of events um, as political actors. I think that I think that that's an important point. And 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 one other thing that comes through in 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 reading the book is that there is there is an element where the the story of the focus group and the evolution of the focus group is in some sense an evolution of post war consumer capitalism. That that's it right. Is, it is inextricably linked to the development of the you know the modern you know consumption oriented economy that we know today. So uh, talk to me a little bit about it, how in your research you found this sort of connection between this evolving form, the focus group and the trajectory of American capitalism. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, I, th I think um, th there, there were a couple things going on. Um, one, um, that, um, that the, um, you know, the mid-century corp corporate America um, really wants to um, sell the public on the idea that consumerism is um is is a form of power and so you see this um you 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 see this kind of rhetoric um you know you see it in advertising you see it in um you know opinion columns that the business elites are writing um you know you see you know you just you see it all over this idea that um that um that being a consumer 
is powerful. Um, there are um, they're constantly making comparisons between um, the consumer marketplace and democracy, and com- you know c- comparing the kinds of decisions that you make between to buy one product or another to voting, um, and um, and um, and 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 part of what's going on is is that. Um, it's the Cold War, so um, they really um, want. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of propaganda um, around the idea that um, our system is better than communism. And um, one of the things that makes it better, of course, is the sort of relentless um, idea that we have choices. You know, we can choose what kind of um, you know, refrigerator to have, um, and you know all those kinds of things. Um, but but part of it is also um, the um, the idea that we as consumers um, have some power over capital. That um, that we have we 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 make these decisions, and that they're essentially. Um, that we're the boss. There's all kinds of rhetoric around the consumer is the boss, you know, I mean, or the customer's consumer. Always right. The customer's yeah. Always right. Yeah. And the, and the consumer is king, but, but it's like the consumer is boss is such a uh, interesting thing because, um, because what what's happening is uh, we're becoming, um, more, you know, more and more acclimated over the course of the century um, to um, a system, you know, in which most people are very much not the boss. Most people are workers, and most people uh, have a boss who has a lot of power over your everyday life. Um, but, but the, uh, but the, so the, so the sort of idea of consumer sovereignty um, is is a uh, propagandistically kind of offers a way out of all that. So. Um, market research, um, and you know, I focus. I, I focus on the focus group because um, I think it's, you know, it's it, it's it's such a um, um, it's such an interesting one because it's it's always a discussion. Um, but market research generally becomes um, a, a way of um, of making that propaganda around consumer sovereignty a little more real. Like we asked you what you thought and you told us, you know, see, we're listening to you all the time. We're listening to your ideas and you're giving your opinion. And, um, and so there's a kind of, um, um, there's a kind of a, and there's a way in which that's, um, you know, that, that idea is sometimes said explicitly, like um, like I, I, f- I found a number of advertisements in which that was explicitly said. But it's also a kind of um, a propaganda of the deed, like you're you're participating in market research, and that makes you feel like oh, your 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 um your ideas are listened to, and um and and it's a good feeling. So there's um. Um, so I, th- I think that um, th- that it, it it's it's certainly that Cold War context is is a part of it. Gender is also a pretty important part of it because um, women are doing a lot of the consuming for the household, and um, and they don't, um, but they aren't um, the most powerful decision makers either in the household or in the society. But they do have a lot of power over 
um, what decisions are made when um, when they go to the store. You know, they're the person you know who's primarily doing a lot of the shopping for the household. So a lot of market research um, in the mid-century focuses um, on um, on women, um, and um, and so a lot of the um, debates around market research. Um, you know, focus on women and um, and bring out questions of, you know, is is the female consumer basically stupid or is she really canny and clever? Is 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 it just impossible for um, for um, is it is it impossible to come up with products that really please her? Like, there's a lot of gendered stuff around this, you know, or is she is is she basically um, really greedy and insatiable? You know, it's impossible to it's impossible to satisfy her. Um, you know, or you know, is you know, so there's like a lot of a lot of different ways of thinking um, about the consumer, most of which are also really gendered and an interesting lens um, on how um, on on how women were thought about at the time. Absolutely. Now, the book touches on a number of specific examples throughout, uh, you know, the post-war history of uh, American consumerism, and, and I'm not going to go into any of those uh, specific examples now. I would certainly recommend that people pick up a copy of the book. It's really engaging, and uh, full disclosure, I haven't read all of it, but I managed to read through enough of it to be able to get a sense of the progression, and I think the progression is really important because where I want to sort of tie up our conversation and really kind of connect it back to some of the things Themes we were talking about in the first half is the way in which the quote-unquote focus group, or at least the idea of the focus group, has in a sense become sort of real life in the 21st century because in a sense... Social media is almost like a focus group writ large at this point. Exactly. Social media has yeah. become sort of the focus group of the of the world that everybody yes. is participating in all the time. And in a sense, we see that reflected in so many different things. I mean, right now, as we're speaking, one of the, uh, you know, one of the trending topics, uh, you know, to use a social media term, one of the trending topics that people are talking about is this recent advertisement from Gillette, right? Mm -hmm. Which is all about, you know, toxic masculinity and about appealing to, you know, men to be better and to evolve and to change the patriarchal systems that have been, you know, in place for so, you know, from time immemorial. And this is, in a sense, I mean, this isn't, you know, just a corporation doing this because they want to be edgy. This is a corporation doing this, making a very calculated decision based upon who knows how many, uh, you know, mountains of data that they've put together and they've crunched from everything from social media to, you know, traditional focus groups and many other uh, forms of data gathering. And in a sense, we're all kind of participating in this focus group all the time now, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're very much in a 24-hour focus group and they don't even have to pay us. We just we just we just do this and one of the things that I I notice um throughout about the culture of consultation, you know, from from focus groups um to through um um Twitter is that um it's pleasurable. I mean, we enjoy going on uh, we enjoy giving our opinion we enjoy sharing we enjoy um talking about stuff with other people um and um and you know we um and and we like 
that feeling that we might be having some influence. Um, and, um, and it's, it's very, and so it's, it's very seductive. Um, so absolutely, um, the, we, we are, we are now in this, in, in this 24 hour focus group. Um, and, um, and, and I think that, um, you know, one of the, um, I mean, one of the problems with that is, um, you know, that, um, you know, similar to the, similarly to the focus group, um, we, we want to make sure that we don't get stuck in the conversation, you know, and that we don't, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it can be, um, you know, sometimes we feel like, um, we're really, um, doing something that we're actually sort of changing, um, the, um, you know, the power relations in our society, um, when we, um, you know, go on and, you know, tweet something, you know, at Donald Trump or whatever. Um, but, but we're not really, I mean, the, 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 the conversation is pleasurable. The expression is pleasurable. Um, and, um, and, and it can be interesting and it can be an interesting, it can certainly be an interest, a useful tool. Um, a lot of the teacher strikes have been organized, um, uh, like th through, through social media. Um, but it, it just, it, 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 it can never be the struggle for power in itself. And, um, and, and there's a lot, um, the, you know, the, um, the, the, the corporate, the ruling class has done a lot of thinking about how to keep us stuck in this conversation. You know, there's a lot, a lot goes into making these algorithms really addictive, making it hard to get off making it so that it's really disruptive to your life if you quit Facebook or something like, you know, so, um, so there's a lot, there's a lot invested in keeping us in the, in that conversation. Um, but it's, you know, in, in our quest to change the world, engage in class struggle, um, and, um, make, um, make this a better place. We, we have to, um, we, we have to resist getting stuck in it. Absolutely. And there is, uh, you know, sort of a sinister side to it too, in a sense that, yeah, the, the social media side of this, I mean, it certainly is like a 24 hour focus group that we're all participating in and there is an element of pleasure to it as well, but there is an element of involuntary participation in other forms of, you know, not exactly focus groups, but, you know, big data mining operations. That's right. right. What we know about Cambridge Analytica, for example, and the targeted data mining that was done that, uh, the Trump campaign and others around the world have used quite effectively. Um, you know, this is also kind of an evolution of some of the same themes, some of the same concepts that you talk about in the book and that really show up in the early days of focus groups that have just evolved from there. That's right. And, you know, um, it's, you know, you can be very, um, it's in, in many ways, it's a, it's almost more, it's almost more obnoxious and authoritarian than um, than than the focus group in in a sense that you know you decide whether to tell the focus group um, you know what you know what kind of vodka you like to drink or how often you know and those kinds of details you're not really consciously deciding um, what you're gonna sh what you're sharing with social media what um, what are the relevant um, points that they're 
mining from you and the political class and the corporate class are um, are are really um, benefiting from um, the data that you're giving them um like every minute that you're on and um and you know i use it as much as most people do and um, so i i'm certainly uh, not on a high horse about it but um but i i think that um it really can be um, viewed as um, as sort of um, the culture on co- of consultation on steroids, and of course, and of course, there is an even further progression of that that we're seeing now, where where say the traditional you know concept of the focus group and you know various other um, ideas like that is about you know trying to understand what it is that people want, but now we're we're kind of in an age where the the AI, the artificial intelligence, uh, knows what we want before we know what we want. You have these predictive advertisements now in social media, right? Where you didn't, you, you mentioned something in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden it's advertised to you in some other form. And you're like, Whoa, how did that even happen? Where the data is almost, it's not only involuntary at sometimes it's like, it's, they're, they're almost ahead of you in knowing what it is that you want. So that's an even further progression. That's right. So, I mean, in the mid-century, market research was really controversial because, precisely because of the sense that that aspects of it were um, involuntary. So, Americans were really freaked out by psychoanalysis, um, and a lot of um, recent um, European immigrant psychoanalysts um, were going into market research and using the tools um, to um, f- um, to to analyze consumer desires. And um, and Americans were so freaked out by the idea that they had desires that they were unaware of that and that and that corporate America would be um, figuring those things out without them voluntarily without our voluntarily telling them um, and um, and um, a, an extension of that anxiety was a, um, a, a panic, a cultural panic around subliminal messaging, um, that there was, there was this, um, uh, you know, a, a real panic around the idea that advertisers were sending us messages that we weren't um, aware of. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think in many ways, um, you know, and then, you know, the, the, the way of thinking about market research Got a bit more straightforward. Um, the the methods got a little bit. Um, the methods got a little bit more straightforward. You know, you just you get people in a room and you talk about things, and you know they, they you know they say what they like, they say what they don't like. It it, it got to be a little bit um, um, less um, less unconscious driven, um, but. Um, and and the and also we as a society got kind of used to market research. We weren't so freaked out by it, um, but um, but I think that um, with with social media, um, a lot of that um, anxiety has recurred. That um, we are not voluntarily giving this information. We are not conscious of it. Um, we're not aware all the time of how it's affecting us. And so some of this stuff that was almost a little overblown um, in, um, in the way that mid-century Americans were reacting to it, um, or at least it seems so now, um, was, is actually um, really a, a, full-on, um, a, a full-on panic now that is um, perhaps almost more justified. 
Well, uh, we're well over the time, so we'll have to leave it there. But I do urge people to pick up a copy of the book. Again, Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation. Uh, Liza Featherstone's book is, I, I think, really, it's it's a good read and something that I think will help flesh out a lot of the other things that, you know, maybe you're seeing in your own life and, and needing to sort of put some historical and, and political context to. Again, uh, Liza, you can find her column in The Nation. Uh, you can find her work in The Nation, Jacobin, many other other places as well. Uh, the previous book I also recommend, very, very important, uh, False Choices, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. Liza Featherstone, thanks so much for giving me your time and coming on Counterpunch Radio today. Thanks a lot, Eric. It's a pleasure. And listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon.